Section 15 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Chapter 8. Propaganda Intelligence. The psychological warfare operator can usually count on two basic interests of his listener. In the field, he can be sure that the enemy troops are interested in themselves. In the enemy homeland, he can be sure that the civilians are interested in their enemy himself. He has therefore a certain leeway in which he can be sure of doing no harm, and may accomplish good, if he confines his propaganda to simple, factual, and plainly honest statements on these subjects. Pompousness, intricacy, and bad taste will recoil against him. It is unwise to employ these, even when the situation is well under control. In a developing situation, the propagandist can remain safe by confining himself to simple statements as to how strong his country's armed forces are, how realistic and effective their leadership. Elementary information giving the favorable aspects of his economic, strategic, and diplomatic situation may also prove valuable initial propaganda. This interest can be counted on throughout the war. The enemy is always news. The wise enemy realizes this and keeps himself in the news, trusting that in the wider understanding of himself, his politics and culture, there is the opening for a more favorable peace in the event of defeat, or for a more docile submission in the event of his own victory. Only unimportant enemies fail to become news. Few Americans, for example, realize that we were at war with Bulgaria in World War II. Had the Bulgars developed sensational weapons, there would have been a sudden upswing of interest in them. People would have realized that Bulgaria, like Hungary and long-lost Avaria, was once a fierce Asiatic state grafted onto the European system. The fabulous power of the old Bulgarian Empire would have become known, and the names of Krum, Simeon, and the Tsar Samuel added to our calendar of hate. But Bulgaria never did enough against the United States to count as an enemy, and even succeeded, by diplomatic ineptitude, in getting into a state of war with all the Axis powers and all the United Nations simultaneously. Bulgaria escaped the fame which goes with hostility. Contrast this with Japan. Thousands of Americans have learned Japanese. Japanese national character is known to us. War has done in a five-year span what education could not have accomplished in a generation. The wise propagandist can, when in doubt, play good music on the air. Or he can, with equal prudence, give the enemy his own elementary school history and language texts. These do no harm and may achieve something. News as Intelligence Harmlessness is, however, a poor ideal for men at war. The propagandist who keeps out of mischief is doing only half his job. To make his message take effect, he must convey to the enemy those kinds of information which tend to disrupt enemy unity, discount enemy expectation of success, lower the enemy will to resist. He cannot do so by means of recorded symphonies or tourist lectures, no matter how well done. He must turn to the first weapon of propaganda, the news. The official propagandist is not a newspaper man. Since he speaks for an army or a government, his utterance is officially responsible. He must be as timely as the peacetime press, but must at the same time be as cautious as a government press agent. He is torn between two responsibilities, his responsibility to the job of propaganda, which requires him to get interesting information and get it out to the enemy quickly, and his responsibility to the official policies of his own government, which requires him to release nothing unconfirmed, nothing that could do harm, or that might embarrass or hurt the government. A sort of institutional schizophrenia is common to all propaganda offices. The sources of news are various. Classified incoming operational reports of the Army and Navy contain material of high interest to the enemy, 
There are obvious reasons for denying access to such information to the propaganda people. Propaganda men might think of their audience first and security second. If they do not know the secret information, but are advised by military consultants who do, security will be better maintained, and the propagandist will not labor under the handicap of a double standard of information, what they know and what they dare to tell. In technically advanced countries, the regular commercial facilities of press and radio continue to do a normal news job, and usually do better work than the drafted amateurs in the government. What intelligence agency in Washington could compile a weekly report as comprehensive, well-edited, and coldly planned as Time magazine? The author often yearned to paraphrase Time, rearranging it and classifying it top secret, in order to astound his associates with the inside dope to which he had access. The nature of news is not affected by its classification, and the distinction between news produced on the federal payroll and news produced off it often consists of the superior professionalism of the latter. The intelligence that goes into the making of propaganda must compete for attention with the home newspaper of the enemy. It must therefore be up-to-date, well-put, authentic. There is no more space in propaganda for the lie, farce, hoax, or joke than there is room for it in a first-class newspaper. Even if exaggerations or nonsense appear in the commercial press of his own country, the propagandist must realize that he is honorary G2 to the enemy, a G2 whose function consists of transmitting news the ultimate effect of which should be bad, but which should go forth with each separate item newsworthy and palatable. A little trick of the human mind helps all propagandists in this regard. Most people have a streak of irresponsibility in them, which makes bad news much more interesting than good. There is a yearning for bad news and a genuine willingness to pass it along. Bad news increases the tension upon the individual and tickles his sense of the importance of things. Good news relieves the tension and to that extent has the effect of a letdown. The palatability of news is not concerned so much with its content as with its trustworthiness to the enemy, its seeming to deal with straight fact, its non-editorialized presentation. One of the reasons why Soviet communist propaganda, after all these years, is still relatively unsuccessful, lies in the incapacity of the communists to get out a newspaper with news in it. They put their editorial slant in all their news articles. Man Bites Dog would not make the front page in Russia unless the dog were Stalinist and the man reactionary. The Japanese, who obediently hated the Americans when it was their duty to do so, nevertheless could not help looking at maps that showed where the Americans actually were. Nazis, who despised us and everything we stood for, nevertheless studied the photographs of our new light bombers. The appeal of credible fact is universal. Propaganda does not consist of doctoring the fact with moralistic blather, but of selecting that fact which is correct, interesting, and bad for the enemy to know. Footnote. Bad news about his side is not necessarily the only kind of bad news for the enemy to know. Gloomy news about our side can harm the enemy listener if his government is running a propaganda campaign to raise production, promote thrift, etc. by claiming things are worse on their side. In such a case, good news about us would be good for him. News must be fitted to the propaganda plan and to the propaganda situation. End of footnote. On the friendly side of the battle lines, the procurement of our own news is a budgetary matter. The propaganda office can subscribe to the news tickers, newspapers, telegraph services, and so on. How much is a matter of administrative housekeeping. In the field, the communications officer can frequently steal news from the news agencies of his own country or allied countries by the process of picking it out of the air. It would be highly unpatriotic of the news agency to send him a bill in the zone of operations. 
and he can classify his record copies of his material restricted so that the owners of the material would have no legitimate business acquiring copies that could later be taken into court to support a claim. Americans would not do this, of course. The reference is to Byzantines. The Need for Timeliness Some white propaganda, and all black propaganda, needs to be written so as to fit in with what the enemy is reading, listening to, or talking about in his home country. The use of antiquated slang, an old, old joke, reference to a famous man as living when he died some time ago, lack of understanding of the new wartime conditions under which the listener lives and worries, such things sour a radio program quickly. In radio, the propagandist must be living in the same time as his listeners. Since the propagandist cannot shuttle between the enemy country and his own radio office, unless he is a braver and more elusive man than governments ever call for, he must try to get the up-to-the-minute touch by other means. Without it, he is lost. He will be talking about something that happened a long time ago, not the situation which he is trying to affect. This need may be called timeliness. It can be served by obtaining all the most recent enemy publications that may be available, by listening attentively to enemy prisoners and captured civilians, and by carefully analyzing the enemy's current broadcasts to his own people. The Nazis made the unnecessary mistake of assuming that isolationism used the same old language after Pearl Harbor. They were right in assuming that there was considerable anti-internationalist and anti-Roosevelt sentiment left in the United States, but they were hopelessly wrong in using the isolationist language of mid-1941 as late as mid-1942. Pearl Harbor had dated all that, and the isolationist-interventionist argument had shifted to other ground. When the Nazis went on using the old language, they were as conspicuous as last year's hat at a women's club. Instead of making friends and influencing people, they made themselves sound ignorant and look silly. They lacked the element of timeliness. They could have gotten it by procuring representative American publications in Lisbon and studying them. Propaganda is like a newspaper. It has to be timeless or brand new. In between, it has no value. Opinion Analysis In a favorable intelligence situation, Espionage can succeed in running a gallop pole along the enemy's main street. When this is done, the active propaganda operator has some very definite issues at hand on which he can begin work. When it is not possible to send the cloak-and-dagger boys walking up and down the boulevard of the Martyrs of the 11th of July, Propanal, properly handled, can produce almost the same result. The opinion of the enemy can be figured out in terms of what enemy propaganda is trying to do. To be useful, opinion analysis must be systematic. For a while, the author had the interesting job of interviewing all the latest arrivals from Tokyo at a certain headquarters. The travelers would usually be pumped up with a sense of their own smartness in having evaded the Japanese and arrived at Allied territory. You could almost hear them thinking, Oh boy, if Gendarmerie Chief Bakayama could only see me now. They were ready, in army parlance, to spill their guts. The only item on which most of them maintained one-man security was the question, Why, chum, did you yourself go to Tokyo in the first place? Outside of that, they were eager to talk. Some of them had frightfully good reasons to be eager. The adverb is literal. With such sources of information, the author thought that he could find out in short order what the Japanese were thinking. He found out all right. He found out every single time. The refugee engineer said the Japanese were so depressed that there was a bull market in butcher knives. The absconding dairyman said the Japanese were ready to die with gloom. The eloping wife said she never saw a happy Japanese anymore. The military school deserter said the Japanese lay awake all night every night listening for American air raids. The reformed puppet said the Japanese had just gone to pieces. Then each of them grinned, the interviews were individual, of course, and expected to be patted on the head for bringing such good news. 
their comments were worthless. What the enemy thinks in general is worth nothing unless your troops are already in his suburbs. What an informant thinks the enemy thinks is worth even less. What do you, reader, think right now? What do you think you think? See, the question is nonsensical. To work, it has to be specific. What do you think about the price of new suits? What do you think about Senator O'May and Congressman McNaples? Do you think that we will ever have to fight Laputa? Are you satisfied with your present rate of pay? Why? What a person thinks, his opinion, is workable in relation to what he does. In practical life, his opinion takes effect only when it is part of the opinion of a group. Some groups are formed by the common opinion and have nothing else in common. At a spiritualist meeting, you may see the banker sitting next to his own charwoman. Most groups are groups because of things which the people are. Negroes, descendants of Francis Bacon, the hard of hearing. Or things they do, electrical workers, lawyers, farmer, stamp collectors. Or things they have, factory owners, nothing but wages, apartment houses, in common. The community of something practical makes the group have a community of opinion, which arises from the problems they think they face with respect to their common interests. Such groups are not only opinion groups, they are interest groups. It is these groups that do things as groups. It is these groups that propaganda tries to stir up, move, set against each other, and use in any handy way. Few individuals belong to just one group at a time. The groups are almost illimitable in number. The propagandist should not get the idea that just because a group exists, it is a potential source of weakness or cleavage. Workers are not always against employers, nor the aged against the young, nor women against men, nor shippers against railwaymen. In a well-run society, groups have interest only for limited purposes. Railwaymen are not permanently hostile to truckers, shippers, flyers, canal operators. At the moment, they may be maddest of all at the insurance companies because of some quarrel about insurance premiums and risks. The poor propagandist tries to butt in on every fight, even when there is none. Often his propaganda is received the way an intervener is received in most family quarrels, with the bland question, What fight? We ain't mad. Sound propaganda picks only those group issues which are acute enough to stand a little help from outside. If outside help would be a kiss of death to the group that is helped, then black propaganda instead of white is indicated. In any case, sound operating intelligence is the first precondition to the attempted psychological manipulation of enemy groups. Profile of Opinion Opinion analysis can prevent a profile of enemy opinion. To make a profile, proceed as though assembling a photostrip map taken by an aerial camera. Take the whole enemy country and divide it into major groups by percentages. Select particularly those groups you are interested in addressing. If you have kamikaze-minded collaborators, Send them in to the enemy country to ask a thousand enemies the same question, selecting the thousand the same way that the total population is made up. If the country is 32% Catholic, the thousand interviewees should include 320 Catholics. If the country is 36% urban and 61% rural, 3% unexplained, get 610 of your interviewees from the country. The questions do not have to be asked in precisely the same form, but they should bear on precisely the same issues. When your agents come back, you have a poll. If you do not have agents, then use the percentages from reference books and try to estimate how many definite groups have what specific grievances. You are then in a position to proceed. Interrogation. When processing prisoners of war, it is an excellent idea to deal with them for morale intelligence as well as for general and assorted military information. Questions should not aim at what the prisoner thinks he thinks about God, his leader, his country, and so on. 
but should concern themselves with those things which most interest the prisoner himself. Does his wife write that the babies have enough diapers? How is the mail service? Is he worried about war workers getting his pre-war job? How much money is he saving? How is the food? How were the non-coms? Did they treat him right? Did he get enough furloughs? Does he think that anybody is making too much money at home? Most men carry over into military services the occupational interests which they had as civilians. A carpenter in uniform, even though he may be a good infantry top sergeant, is still a carpenter, and information can be obtained from him as to the problems of skilled labor, of union members, of the poorer city dwellers, and so on. The profile obtained from civilian poles or from Propanel can then be paralleled in the field. Set up a graph showing the entire enemy army. Use several graphs if the army splits along racial, national, or plainly sectional lines. On each graph, enter the component groups. From the poll or from the interrogations, list the dissatisfaction in terms of seriousness with which the dissatisfiee attributes to it. It is not what you think he should worry about that is important. It's what actually he does worry about. His waiting counts. Make up a scale, quantitative on the actual count of mentions of particular gripes. For example, out of 699 prisoners, of whom 167 were union members in civil life, there were 234 separate voluntary mentions of dissatisfaction with the enemy government's labor union policy. When that quantitative count changes up or down, you have a definite guide with which to control your own propaganda policy. Or you can proceed qualitatively. List enemy dissatisfaction under terms such as these for any one issue, shoe rationing, health facilities, minority rights, esteem for government leaders, etc. Prisoner 1. Is completely satisfied and has no complaints. 2. Has a few complaints, but is generally satisfied. 3. Has many complaints and does not expect improvement. 4. Is despondent about the whole situation. 5. Is definitely antagonistic to home authorities in this matter. Rate each prisoner or captured civilian according to your best judgment. Then make up percentage lists of the grounds for dissatisfaction of each component group in the enemy society. This latter figure will be impressive in documents, but will not mean as much for practical purposes as will the more specific percentages under each separate head. If you feel like showing off, average everything into everything else and call it the gross index of total enemy morale. This won't fool anyone who knows the propaganda business, and you won't be able to do anything with or about it, but you can hang it on a month-by-month -month chart in the front office where visitors can be impressed at getting in on a military secret. Incidentally, if some smart enemy agent sees it and reports it back, enemy intelligence experts will go mad trying to figure out just how you got that figure. It's like the old joke that the average American is 10 elevenths white, 52% female, and always slightly pregnant. Specificity Good propaganda intelligence provides A. News B. Military intelligence which can be released as news C. Military intelligence which cannot be released as news, but knowledge of which will prevent the propaganda operator from making mistakes or miscalculations in reporting the news. D. Enemy news. E. Up-to-the-minute enemy slang, hobbies, fads, grievances, and other matters of current public attention. F. Specific grievances of specific groups and of the nation as a whole, should these arise. G. Information about probable intergroup conflicts. H. Types and forms of discontent with enemy authority. I. Identification of unpopular or popular enemy personalities. J. 
all other information that will enable the psychological warfare operator to act promptly and sympathetically in taking the side of specific enemy individuals against their authorities or other enemy groups. Enemy opinion cannot be manipulated in general. It must be met on its own ground, the current everyday thoughts of enemy citizens and soldiers. These thoughts do not usually concern grandiose problems of political ethics. They are practical like your own. Footnote. Walter Lippmann's book, Public Opinion, was first published in New York in 1922, but it is still clean-cut as a basic statement of the problems of public opinion. The author's own life as a commentator is remarkable in fulfilling the mission which he implicitly set himself when writing about public opinion, the job of lifting issues into emotional and psychological contexts in which the resulting judgment will be based on socially sound factors. End of footnote. They must be appealed to in a way which makes the listener really listen, makes the reader stop and reread, makes them both think it over later. Getting the attention of the enemy is not enough. Most enemies will pay plenty of attention to you, too much at times. Getting sympathetic attention is what counts. This can be done only with specific grounds. With the news, you and he have a genuine common interest. Using his real troubles as a link, you must create that common interest. The force, the effectiveness of your argument, may make him forget that it is the enemy who has brought his attention to this issue. You must leave him with the feeling, By golly, that fellow is right. But to talk about his troubles effectively, you must know what they really are. You must see it his way before you start showing him that his way is your way, that you think he is really on your side, and that his boss's side is wrong, incorrect, and doomed to get whipped anyhow. Propaganda can operate only on the basis of specificity. Real persuasion can be sought only on the basis of real sympathy with real troubles. Old, incorrectly guessed, or poorly described issues are worse than none at all. Figure 28. Nostalgic Black Soldiers in all wars have gotten homesick. Propaganda appeals to homesickness in many ways. One of the simplest is the device shown in this German black leaflet, which shows the husband turning off the alarm clock while the wife wakes up. The printed message on the reverse makes out a discouraging case for the soldier's opportunity to return home, pointing out that the G.I. in Europe, even after victory, will face, quote, that nasty jungle war in the Far East. No identification of the leaflet is given. End of figure 28. Figure 29. Nostalgic white misfire. Figure 30 was carefully adapted to Japanese customs. The mere fact that the Americans knew enough about Japan to celebrate a homey Japanese holiday was probably enough to make the Japanese reader examine the leaflet carefully. Here is a combined nostalgic and surrender leaflet showing how surrender leads the Japanese soldier back to his wife and children. The drawing looks American rather than Japanese, and it is not likely that a genuine Japanese could have been made homesick by use of this leaflet. End of figure 29. Figure 30. Nostalgic White. On March 5th of every year, the Japanese celebrate the colorful custom of Boys' Day. Kites in the form of carp are flown over the cities and countryside, and millions of families set out to give their little sons an excursion or some other treat. It is characteristic of the Japanese that there is no Girls' Day. This leaflet from Psychological Warfare Branch, USAFPA, was designed for dropping on May 5th. It ends with the appeal, You must guard the strength of the new Japan, your treasure, your children. Thus it combines homesickness, patriotism, and pre-surrender indoctrination. End of figure 30. Figure 31. Estrus Black. Young human beings, especially young males, are apt to give considerable attention to sex. 
In areas of military operations, they are removed from the stimuli of secondary sex references, which are, in America, an accepted part of everyone's daily life, bathing beauty photos, magazine covers, semi-nudes and advertisements, etc. Our enemies tried to use the resulting pin-up craze for propaganda purposes, hoping that a vain arousal of estrum would diminish morale. This choice Japanese item is from the Philippines. The best collection of these is kept in a locked file for experts only at the Library of Congress. End of figure 31. Figure 32. Estrus Gray. This and the succeeding illustration show a series of four leaflets which the Nazis used against American troops in Europe. Anti-morale in intent, they rely on the illustrations to get attention and then develop their malicious, salacious, anti-Semitic story. The series illustrates the strength and weakness of Nazi propaganda. End of figure 32. Figure 33, Estrus Gray continued. Concluding the series begun in the preceding illustrations, these Nazi leaflets tried to lower American morale by combining estrum, resentment, discouragement, and inter-American hatred. The Dr. Mordecai Ezekiel, mentioned in number two, is a real person, a splendid American and conscientious official. The Nazis used his name because it was so plainly Jewish, hoping that the ignorance of the American troops would permit their lies to spread. End of figure 33. Figure 34, Obscene Black. One of the wildest adventures of World War II concerns this now rare, quote, Chinese Federal Reserve Bank, unquote, $1 bill. The bank was a Japanese puppet outfit in Peiping. The Japanese had banknotes engraved by Chinese artists, and only after the new pro-Japanese banknotes had been issued all over the city did they notice what the ancient scholar was doing with his hands. The engraver had disappeared, and the Chinese enjoyed a rare, morale-stimulating laugh. Propaganda gestures such as this, spontaneous, saucy, silly, achieve effects which planned operations rarely attain. End of figure 34. Figure 35, Informational Sheet. This British leaflet combines a message for Arabs with instructions for British pilots forced down in the desert. The propaganda content is closely associated with the practical mission of the leaflet. End of figure 35. Figure 36, Counter-Propaganda Instructions. The Wehrmacht in the West had a unit bearing the code designation Scorpion. This unit combined the functions of offensive and defensive propaganda, which remained separate throughout the war in the U.S. Army. The information service sheet shown provides clear, simple leads for counter-propaganda by selecting usable, usable for the Germans, that is, items from Allied sources. From this raw material, morale officers could make up their own leaflets, lectures, or broadcasts. End of figure 36. Figure 37, Defensive Counterpropaganda. The National Socialist Leadership Staff of the Wehrmacht got out this communications for the troops as a guidance sheet for company talks. The content includes thoughts about the Volkssturm, the celebrated American freedoms, and small requests but important. This issue is dated from January 1945. End of figure 37. Figure 38. Black counter-propaganda. Seeing that the Germans had a good counter-propaganda medium, the Allies decided to use it themselves. They issued this, quote, counter-propaganda, unquote, sheet, shown in original and facsimile in English. The blackness is not very black, since few Germans would consider this to be German in origin once they had read it. End of figure 38. End of section 15. Read by Eli Bishop, San Francisco, March 23, 2021.